For over 5,000 years of documented history, people have been using the cannabis plant as medicine. From ancient Chinese medical journals to the modern-day dispensaries, cannabis and its many medical uses have found their way to every continent on Earth. Today, as the prohibition against this plant is slowly being lifted around the world and our technological capacity grows exponentially, we finally have the opportunity to discover what this plant is truly capable of. Please join me, Matthew Myro, as I speak with the remarkable innovators working at the cutting edge of these discoveries. This is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine. Hello, beautiful people. Thank you for joining me for this episode of the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast. You know that this is the place to be to get all the best information out there about medical cannabis, whether it's coming from a clinician, a researcher, a grower, a lab owner, whatever it might be. If there are innovators in this space, you can hear them right here, sharing their wisdom, sharing their knowledge, week after week, and if you're getting as much out of this podcast as I think you should be, please go over to wherever it is that you're listening to this and leave me a rating. It really, really helps, guys. It helps get this information out to more people, which I know you want to do, because you wouldn't be listening to this if you weren't a proponent of medical cannabis. So please go over there and do that, or shoot me a line Matthew at edgeofcannabismedicine.com is my email address. Let me know what you think. I'd love to hear from you so I can keep bringing you really amazing guests just like this week. We're bringing back Dr. Samoon Ahmad. The first time around, he was with his colleague Kevin Hill and co-author on the book Medical Marijuana, A Clinical Handbook, and I had to have him back. I knew that there was so much more that he wanted to share, and he delivers the goods, that's for sure. He is a wealth of information about cannabis history, medical cannabis history, and also policy as it comes to cannabis in the United States specifically. This is a doozy, folks. He really goes deep into everything. And so please give it a listen, learn a ton, and let me know what you think. I am Matthew Myro, and this is the Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast, and today's guest, we are welcoming back Dr. Samoon Ahmad. Dr. Ahmad is a professor in the Department of Psychiatry at NYU Grossman School of Medicine and serves as unit chief of Bellevue Medical Center's inpatient unit. A practicing physician for over 25 years, Dr. Ahmad has dedicated his professional life to helping individuals find balance in their mental and physical well-being. He founded the Integrative Center for Wellness to execute his innovative vision of incorporating psychiatric treatments with nutritional therapies to emphasize wellness of both the body and the mind. He specializes in treating patients with depression, anxiety, bipolar disorder, ADHD, stuttering, and weight management issues. And Dr. Ahmad is also the co-author of Medical Marijuana, a Clinical Handbook. Dr. Ahmad, thank you so much for coming back to the show. It's great to see you again. Thank you so much for the invitation. Pleasure. Absolutely. My pleasure. And so as we discussed, uh, something we didn't get to touch on very much in the first interview was policy and history, which I know that are particular passions of yours and you're an expert in. And so maybe if you wouldn't mind, you know, 
cannabis as a medicine has a very, very rich history around the world. And um, as far back as I've seen, you know, people say China is maybe the first place where we get to recognize it as such. And maybe you can just take our listeners through a bit of uh, history around the world. Thank you. Yes, it's, uh, I think, uh, in some ways, you can see quite mysterious, because it has been very difficult to pinpoint one source. Because if we look at historical information, it seems like it, besides the migration and how it passed on from one culture to the other, or as there were, uh, as people moved around, that simultaneously, people were using it in different continents and different places. But you're absolutely right in at least uh, uh, taking China as an example, because uh, a lot of data has shown historical perspective that archaeological evidence, if you go back in time, they have looked at all kinds of materials, robes and pottery and all of the utensils and things. And I'm amazed that, you know, uh, some data suggests as much as 6,000 before common era that they've been able to find stuff, you know, 20,000 years ago, they were looking at all kinds of stuff at this point. They've found uh, all of these links. Uh, they have looked at ancient temples uh, where they have found such uh, things. They have looked at one of the Greek temples uh, where there is an evidence that a woman while giving birth had coins which had actually cannabis on it. And the question was, what was that being used for at the time? And interestingly, one of the indications, if you look at historical information, suggests uterine contractions and pain that was cannabis was being used at, in, in, in that regard. So from a historical perspective, uh, there, it can be divided because there is one source which suggests that actually the Eurasian steppe and, and Himalaya foothills at the, was one place where probably you can easily say and suggest that was the main source. And it sort of navigated from that towards the Middle East, from there to Africa, from Africa to Europe, and then to the New World. That's how it started. Uh, and that may be so. But as I mentioned earlier, that it's not uncommon how there is a north-south divide, for example. And the north-south divide really means how the cannabis classification actually comes into existence at the same time, which is the cannabis is divided into a fiber type plant and into a drug type plant. And the north-south divide has been that the north has mostly been, which is the hemp derived, and the southern has been more of the drug type. And if you look at the cultures, how it's being used, whether it was used for sustenance purposes or industrial purposes, what was more hemp driven, that's all the northern latitude. And the southern latitude was more mostly used for drug content, which was ceremonial, recreational, or meditation, or religious purposes. While in the north, it was not being used for any of those purposes. It was used for sales, for ropes, for textiles, because hemp is very rich, and its stock is used for that purposes. It doesn't have THC high enough to be used for those purposes. While the southern Produce. And one of the main reasons also for that is that the, in the, it, it, the cannabis is a plant, particularly for the high THC, which is heliotropic, loves the light and loves heat, thermophilic in that regard. So more the heat, more the sunlight, the more the content you're going to have versus the northern does not actually have that uh, the, the same advantage in, uh, for that reason. 
So uh, the migration really starts from the Indian subcontinent, you know, from the Eurasian step, which is Afghanistan, Pakistan, Pakistan, and then it moves, you know, towards the Middle East from there and onwards to the Europe and United States from there. And southern, at the same time, from the South America, there has been a migration from what we call as, you know, we'll maybe delve into it, the marijuana, and what is the origin of that uh, as well. And so that's a separate discussion, and I think we will go there. But that's some of the origins, I would say, to understand that this is thousands and thousands of years old, used from medicine to recreational, to uh, religious, to ceremonial purposes and medical purposes as well. And I can, I can go through the list of antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, anti-convulsive, dysentery, pain, female reproductive systems. I am amazed, in fact, that without any modern technology, without looking at all of this stuff, they were able to identify all of these things. And literature suggests, in fact, going back hundreds of years, that they were able to, even at that time, identify that, yeah, there were these benefits, but yet they also suggested that long-term use could actually cause problems in particular people and went as far as to say that people with mental illness who are predisposed to that can have severe problems. I mean, I, I salute these people who without PET scans and all of the modern technology could delve that deep by pure observation and just looking at in that regard and be able to come up with that. So, Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, especially, I'm always intrigued by the way that because of our scientific method and, and the incredible developments we've had over the years, especially over the last hundred years, we have um, almost a little bit of a bias toward ancient peoples and thinking that, oh, they couldn't possibly know as much as we do. But the truth is, is that their observation methods probably were more keen than ours because we have so many more modern distractions to take us away from having this opportunity to really pay attention, observe the minutia of certain movements and certain people and certain habits and things like that. And um, I, like to, I like to honor our ancient ancestors for their wisdom. No, no, you are so right because, uh, you know, just on a tangent, I just want uh, to make an analogy and make the readers understand the power of observation, which is in today's modern medicine, sometimes we depend so much on scans and all kinds of investigations that, uh, you know, for hundreds of years, the observation of eye and your hand and the touch and all of the things that were so essential for as a clinician or as an observer for that matter, to understand what was happening to another human being. We're losing that art. And I think it, this goes back to the heart of that, that over hundreds of years, and thousands of years, I should say, these observations without any technology were actually a lot more are relevant today because even today we don't have enough information based purely on our methodology by looking at the brain per se. A lot of it has to do with power of observation and seeing how one individual responds depending upon what they are consuming and what concentration they are consuming versus another human being. And that's one of the problems that you don't have standardization of a product. How do you measure those effects in people? And that's where the observation comes in. So I think if we can learn so much from history of how it's being used in different places, different spaces, 
And unfortunately, because of the halts to research that for other reasons, we have, we, there's a huge gap of half a century that we have to overcome now. Yeah, and and we'll get to that. But something that I wanted to recognize is in your book and in, in the clinical handbook, you are very encouraging of physicians to use these more observational methods and and to really create that dialogue with their patients and create the understanding that it's doesn't have a lot of research behind it. So we have to have this more observational process with the treatments. You're absolutely right, and I think. Part of that is that, you know, one of the things that this, the impetus for the book came from the fact I am a physician and I realized that I lacked complete knowledge and information when I started this learning curve, which was a steep learning curve for me. And as a result of that, if my patients were coming to me and asking me these questions, I was dumbfounded as to how do I answer these questions to my, for my patients. And that was because I only viewed my observations were skewed by my lens because I was only viewing it with how I was taught through a very narrow lens. So observation is important, but the lens for the observation is also very important because you need to have a very objective lens of how you observe someone. If you only observe someone through the lens of misuse or abuse, you will never be able to see any kind of benefit that may be extremely important. If you ask physicians today, particularly in the field of oncology, where there's a huge need for pain and nausea, chemotherapy and wasting diseases, all of these things, 70 to 80% of clinicians feel unprepared, prepared, not having enough information to have a dialogue with their patients. And majority of the time, it's the patients who are asking for that help from them. So the, you're absolutely right that that observation is lacking and that's, and people are, as a result of the methodology or lack of research or whatever the fact factors are, uh, we want people to expand and be able to look at these individuals who are coming for help rather than be shy or put them in the category that, oh, this is something that I don't want to address or you are doing something wrong. So passing the judgment morally in some ways on, on people without recognizing that there may be some benefits to people that you are unwilling to listen or learn. So you, you really, I think, more than the general public, I think uh, the clinical world needs to open up their mind and be able to be more like a sponge to absorb information and then they will learn and be able to teach better to their uh, clients or their patients. Yeah, and I think conversely, something that you and your colleague, Dr. Hill, the co-author for this book, are very careful to note is that it works both ways, that if you have too much of a bias toward the the pros, if you will, of cannabis use, you may not actually be able to have the observations of some more adverse effects. Correct. And, we, and I think that is a very fine line. And it, that is one of the reasons that I think Kevin has been an amazing partner in this journey with me. Because he's an expert, per se, as, as an addiction psychiatrist, you would, you would think of somebody who only looks through the lens of, oh, this is abuse and you need to be treated for it. However, this is a man who actually walks that fine line and quite a good line of understanding that use and misuse in that, in, in that regard. So the balance between whether it's the devil's weed or whether it's a panacea and everything and everything is great about it, 
No, that's not the case because it, it's very challenging. You know, you, you see somebody who, for example, uh, has a history of significant substance use in the past, let's say, in that regard. At some point in their life, they develop a severe uh, uh, condition which is unresponsive to conventional treatment in medicine and pain. And your last resort is to use in that regard. How do you walk that? How do you understand knowing that this person has that? Those are the challenging things. And that's where you need to really put your faith and work with the, with the person and, and have to have that conversation where use or misuse and what's the fine balance between the two. So it's not on this end or that end. And that's what this book and we are trying to teach people, which is it's not a for or against debate. It's a debate of being more objective, being able to learn. We don't know. We only know about two phytocannabinoids at, at this point, you know, the CBD and THC. There are 140 or maybe more that we have no clue at this point about. And then the combinations of terpenes and terpenoids, what that does as a synergistic effects in individuals per se. There's a lot to learn here, but we cannot learn if we are in this you know, uh, the side of the field or the other side of the field. Yeah, absolutely. And so wow, there's a lot of directions I wanted to go from that. Um, before we dive too deep into the policy, which is, I feel like we just stepped up to the doorway right there. Um, something that you had mentioned is, you know, if you have a certain patient that comes to you that may have some proclivities towards addiction, and maybe they already are addicted to, say, opioids, there's been a lot of press around cannabis being a good alternative for pain management um, to opioids and even helping some people uh, kick the habit of the opioids. And how, how do you as a physician look at that? Do you, do you see potential there? And, and then how do you deal as a, a psychiatrist? How do you deal with these different addictive tendencies from one addiction to another potential addiction with another substance? Well, you know, you start with what, what the data has suggested and what the indications at this point are. You start there, which is that if someone has an opioid addiction, we have well-known treatments that exist, you know, at, at this point as substitutes for this, which is well-established. However, you need to see, are those treatments working? Are there any contraindications to that? Are there failures because of that? You go through, you know, understanding uh, uh, those first step, second step, and third step. And so from there you go. If you have failed and you cannot make a difference in that individual's life with things that are already have been indicated, proven to be beneficial, then you move on. That yes, this may be something. And they have looked at some of the data that is coming out of states where it's legalized, for example. What, how many people are ending up in emergency rooms with overdoses of opioids? Has there been a decrease in overall opioid use for pain management? You know, such kind of data. How many people have had deaths, so on? So far, the data is positive in some ways. However, there is there are papers that suggest, no, that may not be so. It's too early to call that in that way. And that is why we really need to expand that at this point. So, you know, as an individual clinician, when someone comes in, just like, if someone comes in with an anxiety or any condition, you start a conversation by having, hey, if you have never been on anything before in your life, these are the indicated treatments for you. However, uh, for 
in the treatment A, treatment B, treatment C, you have tried, it fails. How? Let's move on to the what we call as off-label treatments, things that may work for you, but are not really approved or indicated for you. And that's where you have that discussion. I think this would fall under that umbrella, which is someone comes in and say, yeah, I have this problem with addiction. I tried A, B, and C, didn't work for these, these, these reasons, tried them. Or you say, let's try them so that at least we know whether you would benefit from them or not. And then you have on the next conversation among the use of cannabis or not at that time. That would be, I think, the prudent, appropriate way to advise the person who needs to be as much as a part of the conversation as any, you know, rather, I don't think it's a one-way streak of me telling them anything, but to have them in the conversation so that they can understand why I am thinking and walking them through this path of doing this first versus that. Uh, it seems so critical. And I really appreciate that that's the, the path that you go with your patients, because so much of what we do now and so much of the idea around modern medicine is that the the doctor is the the new god, basically. And everything that the doctor says is is sacred and it is scripture. And if he says you do this, you do this. And that's all there is to it. So I really appreciate the conversation that, that you keep going with your patients. Yeah, I think that's one of the fundamentally, if you have a, you know, in in these situations, trust is an extremely important element. And uh, when people are, you know, whether they're anxious or they're depressed or they're struggling with things they have never shared with another human being in their life, and they are opening up their heart and minds to you as a complete stranger, it's easier said than done. And one needs to take that with a heavy heart to say, how do I take this person's trust and hold it and help them in the best possible way? And that's why you need that dialogue. That's why you need that conversation with them. And sometimes you really need to give them the historical perspective of that what they're doing or why we are having this conversation is based on how these things have been put on the sidelines from a cultural view or a political viewpoint skewed. And we need to have clarify those issues. Yeah, and so that's great segue. Thank you. You're really good at this, making my job easy. So if we can, let's let's look at the history, and um, I'd like to go back and just that the Chinese pharmacopoeia, where there was over a hundred different indications where they were using cannabis, and maybe you could dive a little bit into that, and maybe how it uh, kept progressing throughout history to the point where we get to um, the 1937 Tax Act. Right. Correct. So you know, going back to China, if you, if you in fact one of the Chinese king, who was actually one of the founders of the Chinese medicine. I'm just blocking his name right now. But he is one of the main people who, in fact, was somebody who did a lot of work. And if you look at uh, the work in the Chinese pharmacopoeia per se, there's a lot that has been said about and used in terms of its uh, uh, stomach ailments, anti-inflammatory, antibacterial, and reproductive pregnancy and the childbirth, sorry, not pregnancy, in childbirth that was done at the time. Uh, And from there, if you take the lead, it has slowly, it was, I think over a period of time, it has gone on to different cultures. It came into the India. And at the time, if you look at different kinds of medicine, which is whether it's the uh, Islamic physicians or it's the Ayurvedic, uh, people who were uh, practicing at the time, or they were more 
conventional allopathic, which was the people who you know uh, came in uh, from with the colonization started by the European countries of the India or was it the China? That was the sort of what I call as the mishmash, which is people coming and starting to learn that what was happening in these countries. And one of the people, in fact, were not the clinicians. These were the botany, but, uh, you know, people who were studying botany at the time. And they were looking at all of the plantation and the flowers and all of these, and they were doing a lot of work. So they were responsible for understanding the classification. And at the same time, doing a lot of data uh, understanding of how it was impacting people who were coming from the West, using it, and what was happening. And obviously, there were colonization. So the easiest way to study was in their soldiers and people, as well as the other population in that. So a lot was done at that time. There was one of the famous ones is William Shaughnessy, who was somebody who came from Britain and was part of the British Empire in and actually presented a lot, some good papers to the Medical Society of Bengal at the time. And most of the studies at that time did actually show that over a period of time, they did not see anything that stood out as extremely red flags at the time for, for, for this. And, and that information actually still holds value in understanding uh, you know, many of the changes that have occurred in the last 40, 50 years because they've been cited over and over again. So that was one of the examples. You know, then there was a study also, but let me go back, sorry, before I move, move forward later in time. Um, one of the interesting things that happened was early on in, uh, in uh, British India at the time was a lot was happening between China and British exports and imports in terms of the, this. British at the time who were stationed and part of the British East India Company were taking the cannabis plant, which was grown in the Indian plains, and taking it to China uh, uh, at the time. And I'm not talking about cannabis. I'm talking about opium for a minute, just for people to understand what is the link between the two in the 18th century, in the 19th century. And there was so much opium that had gone into China at the time that at one point there were 3 million people addicted in China at that point. That opium addiction slowly gravitated to the United States over a period of time because there was so much turmoil in China that people migrated to the West Coast and the railroads and all of the industrialization that took place. And these people brought that with it. But it'd be unfair to say that the opium had come into the United States through Chinese because a lot of the Europeans were also using and had come to the United States at the same time. So it was a confluence of factors. And it started to, at that time, be used. And it was very common to see all of these products in dispensaries and everything that was being a part of the you know, pharmacopoeia in the United States. That opium caused a significant turmoil and is one of the major opioid crises that happened in the early 20th century, late 19th, early 20th century in the United States that caused an upheaval. And the reason for understanding that upheaval and all of the stringent laws that were passed is very important to know, to understand how cannabis regulations have come into play and how, how 
despite the fact that there was a medicinal value and understanding of that. What happened in the 1920s and 1930s was a function of that opium addiction, where it, cannabis was being started to really be looked through the lens of opium addiction. In fact, there were politicians as well as other people who suggested that in fact, opium had benefits in terms of the pain and other things where the cannabis really had no benefit. And in fact, just what another intoxication or use for causing addiction. And they went as far as to say. And that led to one of the main concerns that something should be done in terms of regulating cannabis at that time. And one of the main acts that was passed was the 1937 Marijuana Tax Act. And one of the main proponents of that was Harry Singer, who was one of the main people who was the leader of Federal Bureau of Narcotics at the time. And initially he was, you know, not so much against cannabis, but ultimately became one of his ardent critics in saying that this. So a lot of the, you know, at the time, women who were using opium in the United States because it was considered that they should not be drinking. Women at that time, Drinking was not considered a part of being a lady. However, opium use was fair enough and fine. And it was just people were using it in all kinds of different shapes and forms without recognizing that they were becoming addictive. Initially, there was sympathy for that. But as the whole culture changed and they started to see and um, uh, link criminality with addiction, that's where things started to change. And that is exactly how the cannabis in some ways has been viewed, which is has been linked with criminal behavior, with behaviors that the migrants have brought it to this country. There was a racial undertones that have come into play over there. Politics and immigration sentiments and culture has completely overshadowed any scientific data that has been there. And that has been one of the main reasons why the medical value or understanding or the research or the data that was required to where we should be today was completely halted for the last 50 years because there was a strong link and association by the politicians of opium to cannabis and both were viewed through the same lens and they're completely different in every shape and form in, in that way. And the, you know, the reason I bring this up is so people to understand that uh, the how cannabis over the centuries has changed, its view has changed for people, you know, because in the ancient cultures, whether it was the Scythians or the Greek or the Romans or the Ayurvedians or the Islamic or the European physicians, they used it in every shape and form. And if you look at hundreds of indications that were being used uh, for all different purposes, it was not that they were suggesting that anyone and everyone should be using it. They were literally going by power of observation just to see that, okay, I'm going to use it and what benefits do I see? And at other times, there are very well, the papers very well written that also suggest of the intoxication effects of what happens to people. So it's not all, again, you know, panacea of everything good happening, but in fact, how people would run into problems if they were using too much or there was no medicinal use for it, but it was just for relaxation purposes and how people would act at times with it. However, there was a fine balance between the two. 
So, you know, that's a little bit of the history and I think for people to understand where we are today. Yeah, thank you. And so there's lots of places to go. Um, one place I wanted to touch on too is um, the the sacredness of the plant in some cultures. And, and just, I believe it was at the end of May this year, a paper came out uh, from Israel where there was a dig that happened there and they found in the Holy of Holies in one of the temples, the remnants of cannabis and frankincense used together as a, a possibility that they were using the inhalations of cannabis smoke in order to get into a more spiritual place to connect with their God. You know, if you go back to India's Indian subcontinent, and if you look at the religious scripture, which is the Vedas, which is like the Torah or the Quran, written 10,000 years before common era at the time, there is a lot of information on cannabis. In fact, is to say it was considered one of the sacred plants plant of joy in some ways and relaxation and relieved anxiety and all of it. Uh, So you're absolutely right. The identification, that is why from a religious purposes, um, and it brings a very interesting perspective of different cultures, different religions, but yet having a common theme. So that was in the Hinduism that you see that value over there. The interesting thing is, if you look at the Islamic scripture in some ways, because if you look at the Quranic scripture, as such, it would say intoxicants should not be used. However, interestingly, nowhere does it say use the word cannabis by name, per se. So it was sort of a you know, uh, thing which was like, well, cannabis is not written as such, so it can be used. So it was used by the Sufis. It was used by Islamic artists. It was used by the intellectuals at the time. And, and, and physicians recognized value of it as well. The problem was in terms of the rulers who were you know, in the Ottoman Empire or other places, it was really at their discretion. So if they were sort of more relaxed, they would keep a blind eye to that and let things happen. Or some who were extremely conservative actually were very strict about it. But at the end of the day, despite whoever was, it was under the radar. And it continued to be. And it was a big part of the Sufism and all of it. It exists even today uh, without uh, any question. If you go to the Indian continent in Pakistan and you go to these temples, you know, you will see, you know, all of the many of the Sufis or things where uh, uh, if you look at what they are using, the main thing that many of them use and I suppose the audience probably if you look at the book, they will see, uh, which is bhang, which is one of the types which is you can either smoke or mix it with spices and drinks in a tea or sugar and all of it. You can drink the, those. Or ganja, which is again a, a, on a segue transition because ganja was with a G, which became ganja with a J in Jamaica. Uh, actually, interestingly, because when the Indian laborers came from India to Jamaica, they brought the cannabis with them, which was the ganja, and it became ganja with a J rather than with a G. So interesting evolution of that, which is another. And then the, Does that relate to uh, the Ganga being the Ganges River and, and the, the sacredness of Ganga there? Is that any relation there etymologically? It, it could be, to be honest. There may be association there with the, uh, in, in, in that regard. Uh, but it's, you know, the issue is it wasn't really called Ganga, it was called Ganja. 
So uh, I'm just not sure on that element because it's called still was, uh, you know, use that. So, uh, and the last one is the church, which is, you know, bhang and, and ganja and then church, which is the most potent comes from the resin of the flowers uh, in that. So, you know, those are the things that are still a very much part of the active so-called mystic, I would say spiritual, uh, uh, rather than per se religious paradigm. It still exists. So part of that may be this sort of emancipation from your consciousness and being more relaxed and sort of a oneness that people experience. And, you know, which again, interestingly, as I was trying to tell you earlier, this distinction between the cannabis, which is so-called, you know, it, it, it depends uh, which classification we are looking at. But if you look at the everyday classification that is used today, which is, you know, which is not in any way, to be honest, data-driven, which is the sativa and the indica. Sativa is more sort of alert, focused, oriented, social, where the indica is more relaxed and sort of, you know, in your own head and sort of a relaxed state, uh, and which is higher THC content. And most of the ones that I'm talking about are higher THC content which comes from that part of the world, uh, one could imagine why, why one would, when you're thinking about mysticism, Sufism, religious purposes, you would see incorporation of that uh, for those reasons. Yeah, and so I'm really interested in this, uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll call it the Islamic loophole that you were speaking to, because um, being raised in the United States and in our history lessons, we're told about the Dark Ages, you know, roughly from what, 500 to 1500, and it's only about Europe. But at that time, Islamic culture was flourishing, you know, the art and the philosophy and having their own sort of renaissance. And I'm wondering if you think that maybe that uh, cannabis loophole in their scriptures kind of uh, set the table for them to be able to express themselves in such a way. Well, it's interesting, you know, which is we learn from each other. <laughs> you know, and, and depending upon who's where uh, in, in the, in, in, I think it's longitudinal uh, civilized, race of civilization, it has really been passed from one to the other. First, it was actually among the Europeans during the Dark Ages, all, many of the works were translated into the Islamic literature and all of it incorporated there. And then, and guess what? It went back to that eventually in, uh, in some shape or form. So who knows how much, but I think if you look at overall the metamorphosis of this, I think everyone in some ways expanded upon what they had taken from someone else. And when this, and, and passed on, they had more value to what was, what they had given to someone. So even if it's gone back and forth, it's been like, I'm giving you something, you will add value to it. I will take it from you, I'll add value to it and I'll give it back to you. That's how that evolution of that information exchange has taken place. And if you look at the historical information, it has been interesting to see, you know, how it was used 6,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago and how it evolved over that period of time. Yes, there are lapses in this. But I think in some ways we have come back. And if you look at our lot of the data being uh, driven today, if you look at, you put the history books, a lot of these back, guess what? We're really going back and trying to understand anti-inflammatory properties, anti-compulsive properties, antibacterial properties, cancer, pain. I mean, these are things that we recognize from thousands of years ago. 
and we are back to, but we are just expanding on that knowledge. Yeah, definitely. So changing gears just slightly, uh, I've seen lots of really cool old pictures of you know, bottles with cannabis labels on them from from old pharmacies in the late 1800s. And so, but when most people think about cannabis these days, the first word that comes to mind is marijuana. And maybe you can speak to a little bit, when did cannabis become marijuana? Well, you know, the, the issue is, Cannabis and marijuana are in fact the same. Of course. <laughs> Most people didn't know that in the 1930s, which led the politicians to, you know, play the game uh, at the time. But the issue is the exact word where it originates from is actually anyone's guess in some ways, but it comes from Mexico. And the marijuana at that time is not with a J, it's with an H in fact, marijuana. In, in that. And interestingly, for my audience sake, I want them to understand that even today, the, all the programs for medical purposes in the United States, when you receive that so-called certificate, and even when you apply as a clinician, you get certification for it, only except one, all are marijuana. They are with an H. They have kept the original scripture, but a lot of us and in, in the scientific world, people are gravitating towards the use of cannabis. And this is where we need to understand first, why? Because there's a lot of racial undertone that exists with the word marijuana, which I will go into, but that may bring audience question, well, you call your book marijuana, why do you do that? For that very reason. One reason is really for people to know why, why this word means so much. And what is the relevance of this word? And we say that in our preface for people to understand because sometimes things may not look good on the surface, the word per se, but the only way you can teach someone is by recognizing, oh, now I get it. So that's one. And number two is that even today, all medical programs are used by that name. That's why it was very salient and important to use that word. So coming back to the word marijuana, in the early uh, uh, 1900 and 1910 or so, there was a huge, you know, revolution taking place in Mexico at, at the time uh, for 10 years, a decade of bloodshed and all kinds of stuff that was going on. And that forced a lot of uh, working class farmers and uh, other workers to migrate up north into the United States at the time. Uh, and as they came into the United States, obviously, they brought marijuana with them over there. And they're in relaxing times. They would just smoke and they would enjoy. And, but it would be extremely foolish of me to say that they introduced marijuana as such to the United States because it existed before in the United States at the time. There were also European influence who had already been influenced because of their colonization all over the world and had brought it to the United States, people who were using it while in Europe, and then they emigrated to the United States. So it was a combination of two factors. However, it was very easy to sort of take a, put a blind eye towards the European immigration and only look at the Southern tier and look at the Mexican immigration. A lot has to do again with you know uh, sentiments in terms of how we feel towards a certain class or certain people at the time. And 
when these so-called denizens at the time or working class people that were using and smoking, most of them were on the plantations. They would grow and they would use it slowly and steadily. Other people were using it. It was introduced next in the South to the jazz musicians at the time. It was a huge part of the jazz culture, per se. The famous people, Duke Ellington and other people were in fact arrested for this. And other ones had, the police was watching them. They had files on them. All of this was going on uh, during this period of time. And from that, what ended up happening was that because that is why I earlier mentioned the history of opium, because this ties in with this. Because of the opium addiction and all of the portrayal in the media of the criminal behavior and what had transpired because of all kinds of stories that were being written about the opium addiction, it was very easy to tie marijuana in the same, put it under the same umbrella, that this is the same connotation in terms of how it's going to impact culture and society as opium addiction did. And what the poor, you know, people didn't understand at the time was that marijuana was cannabis that was available in every pharmacy, every general store that was given to them as children by their grandparents and parents and every kind of concoction that they had been. Had they known, I think history would have been written very differently. However, uh, they were only told that this is something that has been exported and these are people who are coming from the South and they are influencing your young minds and they are, again, I, I hate to bring this up in today's politics, but they literally at the time that they are utilizing the women and raping and doing all of this stuff, which was at the time, it got people riled up and the sentiments began. In, in fact, that led to this whole movement that cannabis should be completely banned at that time. Uh, marijuana should be banned uh, at, uh, at that time. There were a few times where it came up in the legislature. However, it got knocked down because people thought that there was value to it. There are many people who were against that. However, you know, the undertones of how it was portrayed in the media um, and one of the Ardent, uh, uh, you know, someone was against it, was the head of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, which was uh, Enslinger. He ultimately made it a personal vendetta against this, that he has to put a block to it. And he put, uh, individually went to each state at that point, and states on their own started to put regulations in place. However, at the federal level, it was still not in place. But eventually there were so many states that were doing it that it became very easy for the legislature at the federal level to decide to say, let's put a stop to this at that point. And it is so telling that at the, there was so much anti-cannabis slash marijuana sentiment that there was one person, a spokesperson at that time from the American Medical Association, who in 1937 made a statement that holds true to this day. And I'll paraphrase in some ways the message basically was that where we exist today as such, we don't have enough information for its medicinal value or purposes and so forth. But we can imagine a day where we will have our disposal knowledge and science that we will be able to. And we should not stop 
and put this and put a ban on this. But nobody listened to the poor guy at the time. But it was a very bold statement, I have to say, at that time. And it's interesting, we are in October today because the law was passed in August of 1937 and it was applicable in October of 1937. Okay? And we are in October again right now. Uh, I think it was October 4th when it was, you know, put across the, became the law of the land. And basically what it did was it made it extremely difficult for uh, physicians, clinicians, and other people to dispense it because they had to buy tax stamps for if they had to buy, sell, manufacture, whatever had to be done. And if you didn't, there was a huge fine that they had to pay. It was just too much and for too little that was at the time. And sort of lost its value. Number two was the pharmaceutical industry was coming up with all kinds of synthetic analogs for pain and other things. So it sort of fell because there was no standardization at the time. It was very difficult. So, and the lastly, more important is that the media played in some ways a positive role, yet there was negativity as well, which is they brought to the general public a perspective on all these concoctions, which were not just of cannabis. Every kind of stuff that you can imagine was mixed in those concoctions, which was not good for the public to use. And that is when the Food and Drug Act, Safety Act came into existence, and then later the FDA came into existence because of it. So good things came out of it, but it did a lot of disservice as well by putting that uh, Marijuana Tax Act in 1937. And from there on, you know, it became that the movement continued sort of illegally, as said, because it was not legit to use marijuana. It caused problems in terms of how the society looked at people who were using it for criminality and started putting people in prisons. And there were such stringent criteria that on the first conviction, you were in for two years. On the second conviction, five years for no parole. On the third conviction of cannabis, guess what? 10 to 40 years with no parole, okay? That's what was happening. In fact, there's an interesting story by one of the personal aides to Nixon, who in later years was interviewed and said, we knew at the time that the only way we could do things was to associate marijuana with Hispanics and you know the Blacks and uh, also associate that so-called hippie movement with it. Uh, and if we could associate and tie in the criminality uh, with it, it was very easy to do this. And he said, did we know at the time we were lying? Yes, we did. However, we did it anyway. It, it, you know, it, it was what it was at the time. And so Nixon came in with this law and order uh, platform at the time. Uh, and in 1970, he decided to pass the Controlled Substance Act, which once and for all, even to this day, caused complete halt and pause on anything to do with cannabis research and data because classified it as a, uh, as a Schedule One drug. And for those who don't know what Schedule One is, it literally means a very, any product that is a high uh, prevalence of addiction, rate of addiction with no medical value, which means you're basically done. You can't do research, you can't do. So you, it's a vicious cycle. If you don't have data, you can't do anything about it. And you can't do anything about it because you don't have data. So you chase your own tail. Even to this day, there is one place, you know, uh, in the University of Mississippi, which is legally allowed to grow. Uh, and you have to get 
the stuff from there and you have to jump through hoops to get anything uh, from uh, from there. Um, uh, so as a result of that, 50 years have gone by. And in those 50 years, uh, initially, everyone was happy. Marijuana has been put in its place. This. However, the research continued underneath and people continued to sort of see the medicinal value of that was. A lot of paper was coming in and movement started to come up again in terms of what needs to be done. And in the 1990s, people start to recognize more and more that this is ridiculous locking up people like this. This is not of any value or helpful to the society at that point. And in 1990s, California became the first state. First, they started in San Francisco. And then 1996, California was the first state to come out with the legislature and when they put it on the ballot for people for medical tests. And since then, then a whole movement started. And where we are today, where there are 34 states in all, you know, approximately 11 states and District of Columbia have both medical and this, and the rest of 22 have medical programs and the rest are following up and indications change regularly as well as uh, in terms of the uh, benefits and uh, uh, where it should be used. So I think there's a lot of information coming out and if anybody wants to update themselves, that's why cannabistextbook.com, we update it constantly. So people will know new indications as well as new laws that are applicable. So a long answer to your very short question, but I thought give you a little longitudinal perspective of where we are and where we came from. That's fantastic. That was incredibly thorough and I really appreciate it as I'm sure the listeners will as well. Uh, one thing that I wanted to touch on that maybe you know something about is I've heard you know, rumor, conspiracy, whatever you want to call it around, you, you were speaking to the media and the role that the media played in, in just banishing marijuana at the time from society. And uh, um, Anslinger's connections to the logging industry and where William Hearst came into play. And uh, is that all true or is that just hearsay? No, I mean, that is for public knowledge. You can take that in history, and it's very much there, that the Federal Bureau of Narcotics at the time and Harry Singer, they would, they would receive information on all kinds of criminal activities that would go on. They would tie it to marijuana or cannabis, all of these stories of how these horrible things were happening, and then they would feed it to the media as to say this. And... Everyone was on it at the time, yeah, whether it was New York Times, you can, you, you, you can go look at it. And in the, there were excerpts in the book that you can actually read in that way. And yes, it, you know, William Hurst, who was one of the main, main leading publishers at the time, there's information on that, that they were publishing those stories as well. Um, so yes, media was, now how, the question is, were they naive to the fact what they were being fed? anyone's guess, to be honest, you know, in that. Uh, but media was playing both roles because there was a group of people called mudrakers whose job was what you can say, analogy today is ProPublica, okay? They bring stories out and open them up, which is what's wrong, and they dig in and they do that. So they were bringing a lot of stories that were very helpful to this. And they were the ones who actually brought these stories of concoctions and all of the stuff where uh, after the opioid epidemic, many companies were producing products which were like, this will get over your epidemic. And when they really analyzed them, guess what did they have? 
they had opium <laughs> in them. So people were using the same thing they were trying to get rid of in that. So there were good things coming out as well at the same time. But you are absolutely right in pinpointing, which is that media had a lot to do with swaying people's perspective that you can literally change uh, the lens of a society in, in that regard. And that's why these laws were passed because society started to look through the lens, uh, which was all clouded by very biased opinions and information rather than scientific data at the time. And I think we come back to that, that even today, I, I, we are not saying it's the greatest thing, you know, after sliced bread or, or on this, or it, it's, it's a devil's weed. No, we don't have scientific data, guys. We really need to make this happen. We really need to make some, you know, I'm hoping, you know, maybe in five years, you and I will have a different conversation where we are different schedule. I don't know, but I don't see it changing in the near future, to be honest. Any rescheduling, descheduling, I doubt it will happen where we stand today at this point. That is why I think whatever information is coming out and more clinical data that we can have, it would be great. But that is why people should read the book. People should have a voice. People should talk about it because we are an open media, open society. There's so much on the um, in social media that can be said and done, and that's how you change policies. And I think people should do that so that we have objective data to understand what the limitations are, what the benefits are. Definitely. And so as someone who's so involved in wellness, health and wellness and nutrition and everything like that, I always have a curiosity for not just the medicinal capacity of cannabis, but for the wellness capacity of it. And so for people who are well, who aren't, you know, under the suffering of any kind of indications, but want to incorporate cannabis into their lifestyle for wellness, what do you recommend to them? Well, I have patients, you know, for example, who come in with anxiety factors, you know, sleep problems for me, uh, who are you know, exercise well and do all kinds of, of things. And they inform me that, you know, they are using either CBD or this more cannabis or they're using a gummy or they're doing something else. And we have a very open risk benefit analysis discussion with them. That, okay, you are using it. How does it help you? How does it relay your, your, your anxiety? How does it help you at nighttime to sleep and be comfortable or relax for that purposes? People who like to be, you know, more intellectual and, you know, play music or do other stuff. They talk about all of these things. But it's a well-balanced discussion where my role is to tell them that taking it beyond a certain limit or causing long-term because they have an underlying issue or condition, for example, how can it impact on the negative side? And what are those repercussions and on this versus what are some of the things that they're trying to improve they can benefit within certain limitations? You know, that's a discussion I have with my patients. Yeah, and then can carry on that conversation over yes. time too, to see how yeah. it plays out. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you so much. I want to honor the time that this, this hour went by so fast that I can't believe it. Uh, it's just full of incredible information. I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate your knowledge and wisdom on the subject. And it was a 
topic that I really wanted to take a dive into that I haven't been able to yet on the show. And so and I asked the right guy, that's for sure. You have incredible knowledge around the history and the policy. And so I greatly appreciate that. Thank you so much. I had a great time, a pleasure always being with you and uh, hope to do it. Yeah. I hope so too. Maybe we uh, keep saying, maybe we'll speak in a year and things are different. And I, I'd love to take you up on that next October sure. and, and see where we're at with everything. Sure. Thank you so much. What a journey, folks. Dr. Ahmad took us on a trip all around the world from the Asiatic steppe into the Indian subcontinent, over through the Middle East to Europe and Africa, and then finally to the New World, even with some cool tidbits about how ganja got its name. It was a lot of fun. I had a great time. Dr. Ahmad is such a wealth of information when it comes to the history and policy and everything like that. Make sure you go over and check out his website, Cannabis Textbook. It is updated constantly with all the latest news, all of the latest information and indications and research that's going on out there. Go check it out. Keep it up. Keep telling people about this show. And until next time, my friends, stay healthy and please enjoy yourself. This Edge of Cannabis Medicine podcast is copyright EM2P2 Inc. 2020, all rights reserved. Podcast use and availability is governed by terms and disclaimers available at edgeofcannabismedicine.com forward slash terms. I'm your host, Matthew Myro, and thank you for listening. Thank you.